when students or other young designers are asking me like, oh, how'd you get started? If advice is like, uh, make bad decisions and keep quitting jobs to take lower paying ones where you may have fun for six months. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Did I Do That? I did that one really weird. <laughs> I like it. Hello, and welcome to Did I Do That? It's a podcast about making graphic design and making mistakes because it's all part of the process. I'm Sean Schumacher, and joining me today, a very special guest. You may know him from his blog, Ultra Sparky, or from projects like Pink Mints, The Hot Type Club, Bijou Type, or Letra Slut. He's worked for some of the biggest names in type, and previously he served as type director at Monotype, and then as senior manager of font development at Adobe. And these days, he's the director of type products at Type Network, a catalog of independent foundries and designers representing some of the best type design work happening today. It's Dan Radigan. Hi. Hi. Good Googling, Sean. <laughs> Well, I I wish I could take more credit. It was just visiting your LinkedIn page and transcribing the results. It's the magic of SEO. Yeah, LinkedIn. Thank you, LinkedIn, for making... I I remember... I feel like when was, I was... Was in, that your bid for sponsorship right there? Yeah, LinkedIn, please. <laughs> Actually, yeah. If LinkedIn wants to sponsor me, I'm down for it. Get please. That, get that LinkedIn money, it's girl. It's the goofiest social network there is and that makes it my favorite by far (laughs) if it wasn't so incredibly cumbersome to post things to it then i would be posting all the time but that it is cumbersome means that there's few things posted to it and that makes me very happy i update it every time i have to find a job (laughs) (laughs) truly the only time anyone really visits linkedin you know you're looking for a job when you're just like well you know maybe spruce up the old linkedin page just a little bit yeah Oh, that header background, that could use an update. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, you, you came here on very short notice as well. We just talked like, was it yesterday or the day before or something like that? I think you like wrote on Sunday and then yesterday morning. I was like, oh, this seems like a fun thing. Yeah, sure, I'll do that. But, <laughs> you know, it's the end of the year. Work is like easing up. You know, I work with a lot of folks who are on the East Coast, so my afternoons are flexy and more laid back for the most part. Oh, that's perfect. And especially since, you know, sunset here right now is roughly at 3 p.m. or so. It's a really great time to be in Portland, I feel like. I, you know, I only have, I've only lived in Portland a little over a year. And when I would tell people I'm coming here, even since coming, they're like, oh, why would you come to Portland? Like the weather's so awful. But it's like (laughs) the weather is exactly like the climate that I dealt with when I lived in England for years, which I was fine with. And, you know, it's better than new york in the summer the winter so i'll take it <laughs> well yeah a few things are worse than a new york summer if you want humidity and stink yeah. it's a great intersection of those two yeah, exactly. characteristics um yeah so you you've been out here a year where did you grow up though where did you where um, did you start I grew out? up in new york city you grew um, up in new york i lived in staten island um i started my lifelong campaign to get out of staten island for good by <laughs> Choosing to go to a high school that was on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So I just kind of ran around Manhattan as a teenager in the 80s. And oh, damn. Then, That's you know, a pretty uh, pretty sweet way to do things. That is – I really get a lot of, like, cultural street cred out of that when I need to drop it. When I lived – I lived in England for – when I, I went to grad school there and then lived there for a few years after. And I would, like, run into a lot of people who were just like, oh, well, you know, it's like London's great. It's, it's where everything's <laughs> happening. Like, oh, you're an American. <laughs> and I really discovered that talking about it's like, well, actually, 
I grew up in New York City in the 70s and 80s, and it was like going nuclear. <laughs> In oh, terms yeah? of being like, like, oh, you think you think you've seen some shit? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Let me tell you about the High School Musical I was in with Gwyneth Paltrow. I'm sorry, <laughs> what? You were in a High School Musical with Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. What was the musical? Uh, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. She and her friends were doing it for a high school like English elective project. They sort of evaporated about halfway through the rehearsal process. <laughs> I don't really, like, know how they got their credits for that, but it was just, you know, I was reading an article with her, like, years later after she'd been, like, famous and stuff, and she just made a reference to her mother, and I, like, put it together. I was like, oh, my God, she's that, like, rich girl I knew in high school. <laughs> okay. <laughs> did she Did she in those days seem to have any designs to make sort of jade eggs or uh, any of the other no, questionable I, health I, claims? I was surprised as the rest of us. <laughs> So she she didn't even act in the final play though. This was just like yeah, you know, like she's my, a floater. My my friend Neil and I we just sort of like got word from like the younger brother of one of the other girls who's working on this went to our school and he like came up to us in the cafeteria one day. He's like, "Oh, we need the script back. They're not going to do the play." It's like, All right. whatever. Oh, so the play didn't even happen. Yeah, like I said, I don't I don't know how they like got their credits, but. It's just one of those like weird, very New York-y things that I feel happen to like lots of people who live their whole lives. You just have run-ins with people. I guess so, and, yeah. you know, it's wacky. Yeah. I have tons of weird little like celebrity Jason stories like that just from going about my business. I also love the fact that they were reclaiming the scripts as though those are the only copies of <laughs> your well, good man well, Charlie you know, Brown like, they can locate. Well, like if a high school does a play, they have to like rent the scripts and certain things. It's like part of oh, the package really? of when they pay the rights for that. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh. I don't know if that still like goes on. Yeah. You know, this is like 1987. This was happening. Well, probably high schools now don't have any money to rent scripts, so they're just doing things in the public domain place from before 1917 or whatever yeah more power to so you're you're kind of floating around during high school in that like kind of the most vibrant period of the new york scene yeah i mean it was it was a really really fun time and also because the you know my i went to this all boys all scholarship private school on the upper east side so we were like the school's mission was to like get kids from like Catholic schools in the vicinity and give them a chance to like get into the Ivy League. Oh, it was like definitely like a magnet school. So all of my friends like lived, you know, like an an hour, hour and a half away from school like I did, but in all different directions. So really to hang out with your friends, you would just be like running around Manhattan. Yeah. Like after school. And that was just really fun to do in the (laughs) mid 80s. You know, it's like here I was was like 14 years old. It's like, well. Bye, Mom. I'm going to go, like, travel for an hour and a half across New York City. I guess I'll see you tonight. (laughs) And, you know, you just – and you have to, like, learn to be, like, not a target. (laughs) riding Riding the subway, running around. I mean, I remember a night. My friends and I, like, we almost got beat up by the Hells Angels because we walked down the wrong block in the East Village because we didn't realize it. It's just – just some block that they controlled. They, yeah, they had they had like their building on this one block in the East Village that it was it was their turf. Yeah, and like we were like walking on our way to go see a play, and I realized where we were, and it was like I just like looked over like the one guy who's in our group who's like wearing his varsity jacket. I was like, fuck. <laughs> it's like 
eyes straight ahead, put on the don't fuck with me face. Everything will be fine. <laughs> I don't I also don't want to get on the Hells Angels bad side, but Manhattan seems like maybe the worst place that you could set up your motorcycle club. I mean, if There's... you want to like show that you can like manage a turf anywhere, that seems really good. <laughs> Well, then you may as well found a, a Hells Angels chapter for the moon, if that's the case. Why not? I mean, someone should get that place in order. Yeah. <laughs> People are just leaving yeah. trash all over. But, like, it's funny that, like, years ago, I had to really get over this instinct that a lot of people who've grown up, not just, you know, in a place like New York, like, Portlanders do it. People anywhere where they've grown up with like, oh, it's not the same as it was. It's changed. Oh, yeah. And it was like, oh, I actually don't have nostalgia for how it's changed, like, a you know, certainly a big city, like, it's always in change. That's yeah. part of the nature of it. It's like, looking at it objectively, I don't really miss a lot of what New York was in the 80s because it was, like, dangerous and dirtier. It yeah. was a lot more fun. But, you know, what I miss is being a little bit, like, young and fearless and naive. Yeah, Like, yeah. I loved, like, not realizing that I was going to, like, almost get assaulted by the Hell's Angels <laughs> or... <laughs> You know, when everything is just like new and you're excited to explore it and you sort of don't know enough to realize why you should show caution. Yeah. Everything seems terrific. So, yeah, you know, I just kind of like miss who I was at those various moments over the years. Yeah. Well, and I think that's that's also like the intoxicating truth of like nostalgia is like you are not remembering the actual truths of the moment. You're remembering how you felt. And I mean, like the people who are remembering the 50s with fondness, they're remembering Leave it to Beaver, but not their actual lives and how messed up they probably were. Exactly. And like, you know, even with things like, you know, how I've worked over the years, like like when I first met Briar Levitt, we were talking about like Letrosec. She was doing her documentary and it was like really fun to talk about like, oh, it was like cool to be working at this point where like the analog era was hitting the digital era. And yeah. Hacking your way around. It's fun to talk about that and put it in context. Around was like, it's like, it's like, oh, this doesn't work. Oh, I guess I have to figure out how to do like <laughs> this now because the printer doesn't know what I'm doing on my end and I have to figure out how to get the software to do something that will make sense for the mechanical. (laughs) It's that thing about nostalgia. Sometimes you just have to take a step back and be like, it's all part of the journey, man. Exactly. Like during this time, was that kind of where you started to discover design or did you already kind of know about it? I grew up wanting to draw comic books. Oh, really? I was like really into like comic books and science fiction superheroes. And I like to draw. My friend Eddie and I would like make up our own comics in a way he and I have talked about this is, is perfect. He's a, you know, he went on to become a filmmaker. He always loved writing stories and writing like sort of like fake TV show treatments. And I really loved like drawing the mastheads of these comic books, but I'd really lose interest when it would come to like doing something (laughs) on the inside. And like, he went on to like, you know, become a storyteller and like, you know, TV producer and I went on to like just draw letters for a living. But so since I liked drawing comics and lettering and stuff, I started working on the high school newspaper and I became a graphics editor. Oh. Primarily because like, you know, I would draw like a buxom female Santa that all the guys in like the all boys school <laughs> got a kick out of every year. But in working on that around the office, the newspaper office, there was stuff for like putting down headlines in the newspaper. And it was like Letraset and it seemed yeah. like a Croy headliner machine, which is almost like a way of like putting 
black type onto a piece of scotch tape that you could lay down on a mechanical board. And I just had fun playing with that because in like starting to use that stuff in my the comic strips that I was drawing, I was like, oh, wow. Like, so you can like change the way these letters look and it like changes the whole personality of what I'm doing. Oh. And that became a lot more fun than what I was drawing. And dawned on me after a couple of years of that, there's like, oh, this is like a thing that I could do. There's like a profession that does this. Yeah. That seems fun. It really, it just sort of took off from there. And, you know, and I worked as a, I studied uh, graphic design in college and I worked as a graphic designer for years and years and years and yeah. just realized that typography was always the thing that I loved most about graphic design. Like where I worked as a graphic designer over the years, like, you know, I became like the go-to type guy. Like, you know, I did a lot of freelance work for a public television station. They're like, oh, we're doing the annual report. Get Dan. Like he can like lay out the entire back section like nobody's business. And, um, <laughs> oh, the all the sponsors and everything. Well, like like the no, like the financials, like like the oh, hardcore typesetting stuff. Like, damn, it's like the systems just felt natural to me. Yeah, do it. And I had good visual sensitivity for stuff like that. And then I just more and more I gravitated more into the type side of things until I finally realized that I didn't want to I didn't want to make websites. I was like a technically competent graphic designer as the web was really happening. I, was like, yeah. I saw this slippery slope like opening up ahead of me. It's like, oh, if you're going to be the guy who can do the websites, you may have to become the guy who does all the websites. I was like, <laughs> Nope. Oh, hey, I'm out. That's that's how I got into this business. <laughs> um, and so I just I just decided to like really lean into the part that I liked and over specialize. Yeah. And luckily, that worked out. You know, it was a, it was a big risk. You know, I quit all my jobs and took out a bunch of loans and left the country. But I really like found found my thing. Yeah. Thankfully. So you're when you're like going into college, uh, you went to college at, at Boston yes. University. Um did you already have kind of that knowledge of of type or was that something that you kind no, of discovered not at all. as I just, you were there? I mean, I just sort of had like a vague idea of like design seems like the thing that you can do in an art school that at least will let you have a job. Yeah. Like my parents seemed very disappointed at first because they were like, well, if you like art, why don't you become an architect? And I was like, well, I don't like math. Oh. And, <laughs> And, You're not going to be much better off yeah. job-wise in architecture. Well, and, you know, I didn't even have the scope of that because, you know, and even at, at BU, like, you do two years of just traditional fine arts stuff before you focus. Well, I didn't do any graphic design until I was, like, a junior. But I just, like, was into this idea of design that really came very directly from the idea that, like, starting with the stuff I was doing in the newspapers, like, that is the medium I enjoyed working in. I, yeah. I enjoyed layout boards and working with type and, con, you know, constructing things and uh, learning, being taught stuff about typography. It's like, oh, this all makes sense. This is fun. Like, I really like making things this way yeah. and influencing the way things feel using this stuff. Did you kind of specialize in doing, like, layout type stuff in school? Like, what, uh, what were you starting to focus on there? Well, you know, again, studying graphic design in 1990 
was pretty clear cut what it was all about. You like learned how to do magazine layouts, book layouts, you know, how to like do a mechanical and make grids. Like, yeah. At BU, like we also had requirements to do photography and printmaking. Um, Makes sense. So for it was that just era. it was yeah. just like you know really it hadn't gotten to the point where the education was about like. Which of these many digital tools are you going to try to master? Yeah. Like, this is part of why I sort of, you know, like, pieced out from working as a graphic designer was because it felt like design was becoming about more and more and more specialized skills that you had to kind of, like, throw into your toolkit. And, you know, when I was studying design and practicing for the first decade or so, you could, like, function as sort of, like, you know, a multifaceted graphic designer by doing a little bit of everything because the everything was a lot less yeah. of what there is to do now. Oh, God. They're, yeah. <laughs> they're I mean, so you know, and so now. like, and, you know, with the, by trying to specialize just in type, you know, that's an intersection of design thinking and technology thinking and business thinking that is its own whole world that's plenty to keep up with. Yeah. Like, when I was like trying to, uh, just roll back a bit a little bit. When I was going to get ready to move to Portland, you know, I had a mortgage lender be like, oh, you haven't been running a business for two years yet. I can't give you a mortgage. I was like, guess I got to get a job if I'm going to buy a house. Um, Is and, that really? Oh, God. Yeah, I was like told straight. It's like, oh, I can't give you a mortgage. You haven't been self-employed long enough. This is like six months after I'd left Adobe. Oh, boy. Um, and I was like, okay, well, I guess I have to find a job somewhere. And I realized, like, I don't have the skills to be a graphic designer anymore. Like, my my actual just professional skills in that area are, like, 15 years out of date now. You know, the fact that, like, I think in color separation and can do page layout, you know, works really well for making a zine. But, you know, not for sort of, like, walking into someone's studio and being useful right away. Yeah. For the most part. But, I mean, I think, like... You know, there's those technical skills that change, but like yeah. the fundamentals of, you know, layout and type and. Oh, I think the, the fundamentals are in there. But like if you're looking to hire someone, <laughs> are you looking to hire someone whose skills are like 15 years out of date? <laughs> and then who's going to be like a total like snob about all the type you're doing? <laughs> I mean, has, I mean, looking at it in the big picture, you know, like my career now is like over 30 years because like I'm a middle aged fart. The it's very different. Like I started learning graphic design when our school computer lab was like eight Mac SE thirties that were daisy changed in an Apple Talk network running the same license of Quark Express. <laughs> you know, like I Wow, like, couldn't couldn't I, plunk out that one seventy nine to get yeah, the full uh full no, eight licenses. Absolutely huh? not. You know, I was excited when Adobe released InDesign 1.0. It was like, oh, there's something else we can do. Like, even now, like, when I tinker on a website, I have trouble wrapping my head around doing more than just writing HTML and CSS by scratch because yeah. that's about where I tapped out. Well, yeah. Of just what the, the process is like. Well, that's a great example, though, of, like, because the web, it, I feel like, changes so fast that if you, like, you know, I, I was doing a job where I was not, actively working on websites for yeah. probably about two years. And in that two years, it changed so radically that yeah. when I tried to come back to it, I was like, well, I don't know this language. <laughs> I don't know what any of this new stuff is. Yeah. We're compiling code yeah. now. Yeah. I don't but know if I like that. Yeah. It, but it's just like, you know, like a choice you make in the stuff you want to keep learning. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm useful working in the type industry because like, I'm curious about how things move in there. So, like, that knowledge is, like, far outpaced 
people who just like, you know, I just wanted to like pick a font and now I have to think about like how it renders in Windows. And, you know, it's like. <laughs> that used to be so big of a thing. The kids of, don't know. It, it's always like more and more and more and more. Um, and it's just, you know, you, you sort of you choose your battles. And then by the time, you know, you realize like, actually, I would rather hire someone who's into that side of it. Yeah. To like help me do something and let me focus on the part that like brings me joy that you know, feeds my curiosity enough to keep up with it. Yeah. So like after college, you actually were, were working as a typesetter at, at Boston University, <laughs> yeah. right? That was like, you know, I approached that job with this spirit of like, I'm going to apprentice. I'm going to go deep into type. Like I was nerding out at a very like early point in my design career about taking the type side seriously. It's like, oh, this is like a good job where – I'm going to just like really, really get the fundamentals about how to work with this technically and visually. And that really turned out to be the case. Yeah. And it was a fascinating time to work because I had also – so this is at the – I worked at the Office of Publications at BU that did all of the university's like internal stuff. And I'd applied for a job there as a graphic designer and like I didn't even get an interview. Oh. But then I had an opportunity to – apply for this job as a typesetter because the person who I'd be replacing sat in on one of my design courses and she mentioned it. I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Um, and I loved the job. It was fun, but I was hired to be like the Mac guy in the type office because they'd used a pre-desktop digital typesetting system, this sort of like server-based system where the typesetters were, key, were typing and then keying and formatting codes around it. Oh, okay. And then assembling that into galleys that would get printed out on an image setter for someone else to then like, you know, cut up and lay out into mechanicals. Wow. Um, but they, <laughs> this sounds but cumbersome. There's a great documentary called Graphic Memes I've that heard, goes into you you're know, the nuts and bolts of what life was like. Then. Wow. So I can, but, I can just watch this movie Graphic Memes and find out all about it. It's fantastic. <laughs> You'll hear a very familiar voice as the first spoken words in the documentary. <laughs> but so the, so all the designers in the office they were starting to do their own page layouts with Macs. They, yeah. they were using PageMaker. And instead of like specking things out and sending it to the type office, they were starting to set, you know, do all their own typesetting in the layouts. And it wasn't great. And the typesetters didn't know how to help them. Yeah. So they needed so the typesetting office needed someone who knew how to use a Mac which I had been doing in school because I didn't want to use lecture sets. I was like, I'm going to learn how those little machines work. And it was great because I really was right there at this intersection of these two worlds where I was I was helping people who like were more skilled at some things than I were understand how to map those skills to like technology that I had a handle on. But then I was also in charge of making sure that they weren't like sending stuff that wasn't refined to the very expensive image setter. So I had to like <laughs> stay one step ahead of them about how to make this stuff look good. So oh, I could God. Um, and it was great. It was cool. And then I ping pong back and forth between like sort of typesetting style jobs and design jobs over the years because that system that they used in the office um, was a very like specialized big piece of software on its own. And when I moved back to New York, there was a technical publisher there who heard that I was the only person in the city who was already trained in how to use the system. Ding, ding, so, ding. Like the whole time that I worked after moving back to New York, after uh, being in Boston for a while, I was like, I would work at this technical publisher where I was essentially writing software code for typesetting. 
Wow. Um, and then like that would become creatively frustrating. So I would quit and then I would do freelance work for the public TV station, which was the most fun place to work and where, you know, you're doing like a churning project, 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 projects um, for like educational programming. So it didn't feel ethically like icky at yeah. any point. But like small budgets, quick turnarounds. So it was like fun material to work with, really taught me to make decisions fast. Oh my, um, does nonprofit which, work ever do that? Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, which is great design training. But then I'd be like, well, I'm also getting poorer and poorer by the day. So I'm going to go back and work in typesetting for yeah, a no, while. Nonprofit and... work does that too. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, you know, I had this, it was all this very weird back and forth about, like, oh, what do I want? That in the end actually was setting me up for what it's like working in type design, which is very technical intensive and very design intensive. Yeah. So you're you're kind of bouncing around between these yeah. different things in New York. Like I feel bad when students or other young designers are asking me like, "Oh, how would you get started?" If advice is like, "Uh, make bad decisions and keep quitting jobs to take lower paying ones where you may have fun <laughs> for 6 months." You know, like I've always worked in design and type in some capacity, but it has been such an absurdly haphazard path. So it's it's less a ladder and more sort of like an inverted bell curve. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was kind of the moment somewhere in there where you found type design as the thing that you wanted to yeah. do. Like, what was the moment where you realized, like, I probably need to go and, and learn about this? I was, um, picture it, New York City, 2005. My partner at the time was employed by AIGA doing like admin stuff. And I was around AIGA events in New York City all the time, um, meeting like, you know, the cream of the crop of the design scene. But being like the, you know, I'd be like the flunky who was around. Like I was <laughs> helping out here, helping out there, hearing all these great people talk. And I was very frustrated with where I was because I'd been working, doing like nonprofit stuff or this like very dry technical stuff, which is, intellectually interesting in terms of problem solving, but the outcomes weren't pretty. Yeah. Um, I just felt like, oh, I've been, I've been working for like 15 years already and I haven't gotten anywhere. And so I was looking into grad schools. You know, when you're working with all of these story designers who have these impressive careers, you're like, I, do I just need time to like focus so I can make that leap? Um, and I had applied to um, Yale and School of Visual Arts and got turned down the first time. And oh. I was getting ready to reapply um, because I was like turned down like with a sense of encouragement. Okay. Sort of come back. Um, and I was getting ready to reapply. And I was at TypeCon in New York City. And during a break, I was sitting in like the foyer and there was a table with flyers. And there was this little like A5 for Americans, like half letter sized piece of paper talking about this program that uh, – for an MA focusing in typeface design. And I was just looking at that thing. It's like, I didn't even realize that was like a thing you could do. Oh. I had never done any type design at all because I took type so seriously. I felt like like that was a huge responsibility. You don't just like, you don't just design a typeface. <laughs> that would be crazy talk. Um, that was, you know, all that work that I would, was doing as a typesetter, you know, becoming a specialist with typography is like me, like earning my way to get there to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, but it's like, oh, this is actually because 
when I had been thinking about these other graphic design programs that I was considering, I was already like preparing myself to negotiate in my head how to tell them, well, you require that we, you do some, you know, some motion design. I don't want to do that. Like <laughs> I was already like trying to weasel out of the stuff they wanted you to learn as a well-rounded graphic designer so I could focus on typographic stuff. Yeah. And then this thing comes up as like one year instead of two. That one year cost less than a semester of the programs I was looking in. And oh. it was in Europe. And it was just doing typeface design. Wow. And it just like everything came into place. And the um, Jerry Leonidas, who's the course director for that at Reading, was, was speaking at TypeCon, which is why the flyer was there. And so I just like found him at the closing night party and chatted with him about like, you know, what I'd been up to and, you know, how much I circled around typography. And he's like, He's like, yeah, sounds great. You seem like this could be a good place for you. And he handed me over to Sara Siskolne, who had only recently started working um, for Jonathan Heffler at that point. And she had just she had done the program in Reading. And, you know, she had very good feedback for me about what the experience would be like. And so I just I was sort of laser focused after that. Everything was this is exactly what I've been looking for all this time. Yeah. To go deep on the thing that I loved. And a lot of my thinking about that was. I've spent so much time using typefaces to have a real sense of like how I need them to perform, what they need them to do. Yeah. So why shouldn't I be the person who could make those decisions to get a typeface to do a certain thing properly? When you're looking at them that closely, like yeah. you're forming so many opinions in your head, yeah. like it only makes sense to turn that exactly. into like making. And, you know, and of course, the way that things often happen when you get down to it, when I got to Reading and I started drawing some stuff for the first time, there was so much I took for granted. You know, like I drew like I think the first set of sketches I did, I drew an M totally backwards because I'd never consciously thought about where the heavy parts go and where the thin parts go. <laughs> because that was the level I yeah. didn't have to. That had already been dealt with by who had ever made every typeface I ever used. Yeah. So it was great to realize like immediately I can't even be arrogant about what this process is going to be like because I really have to start from scratch in a lot of ways and build it all back up. What was your first typeface like that you developed there? I have an example of it right here. Why? The, so Reading has a, a very particular process. It's a very research-driven, practical program. Um, so you do a bunch of exercises to think about how you draw, look at different typefaces, but it, they're encouraging you to do something appropriate for extended reading as really a test of all these things that you've been digesting. Yeah. So I worked on a typeface called Gina, which my brief at the time was I wanted to design something that was good. It was a good um, response to Ooh. all the typographic problems I was running into working at this technical publisher. So how do you marry Greek versus the Latin alphabet for doing equations rather than for text. How do you get equations to read almost like another writing system that sits alongside English text? How do you design a book typeface that can survive like low cost reproduction methods? Because these technical books were like printed as cheaply as possible. Oh, yeah. But they cost by the nature of them. They cost hundreds of dollars. So you want you wanted the text to look good. So I had a clear brief and a clear sense of all the problems. So I just designed to that. You, you say that, but I'm looking at this and you've given yourself so many complicated things to do. 
in this type. And then like extra things. You've got you made small caps for this. Well, yeah, because you use <laughs> you use small caps. So it was again you you throw into a project like this because you know this isn't like you're. We weren't doing a semester of knocking out a typeface. This is 12 intense months yeah. of trying to get ready to make a career change into doing this. So, I mean, when I compare what I did, and even my classmates, if you look through that specimen book, there's a bunch of people who are doing fantastic things on the type world. Oh, yeah, Scholar. I've uh-huh. used Scholar in yeah. things. David Brezhnev was was my housemate that year, and Nicole Doton from Process Type Foundry is yeah. there. Um, there's a bunch of people. And- I feel like even our projects feel so unambitious compared to what I've seen happen in classes since. As with a lot of design, you know, every group sort of ups the ante as they go along because they've seen what's come before. I, these are all so beautiful. I I mean, I, I'm i going to be honest. I kind of like yours the best <laughs> out of all of them. Oh, stop. I, I mean, I love a serif. And I, I, I should have released that typeface the year after I finished at Reading just – wrapped it up somehow, put it out of the way because I haven't released it yet. And I'm now so far away from it. Whenever I touch it, it like loses focus more and more because I bring into it every other thing I've learned and thought about since then. Yeah. And I just, I don't think I will ever complete that typeface. I can use it as the starting point for something else. Yeah. Um, But it'll wind up becoming something so different from what it was then. Well, I mean, as we have a student or we had a student here, uh, Walton Brush, um, who I, I worked with for a very long time. And he, he, in our type design class, uh, he made a typeface called first pancake because, you know, your first typeface is often kind of a first pancake. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a little rough around the edges. It's yeah. maybe, uh, Maybe a little too thick or maybe a little too yeah. thin. As far as pancakes go, this is pretty damn good. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that I've always bristled over the years when you know, at, at the end of the academic year, when Reading students, KBK students show show their projects, they're often met with reactions um, on you know type message boards and such. And people acting like their new typeface release. Yeah. And which get people on this band. I was like, oh, there's a Redding style. There's a KBK style. They're taught to all design things the same. Really? And I really bristle against it because we're not taught what things should look like. That's not the journey we're led through. Yeah. But we're there for 12 months and we are challenged with mastering certain skills that like land you in certain places in order to show that you have like grappled with certain questions put before you. Yeah. You know, book typefaces, a little in this is in Redding's case, you know, design for scripts that you're not a native speaker of so that you can understand research and grappling with shapes yeah. that are new to you. Um, and what's always been interesting to me is looking at what everyone's second typeface looks like because those are all done to a high degree of polish because we were incredibly focused and motivated and we were getting the best resources to give us feedback. But what you really see in everyone's second typeface is what they do with all that stuff once they're like given the opportunity to think about what comes next. Yeah. So like what was the, what was the next like step for you? Like where did things go from, from Reading? Um, the student visa that I was on to be in Reading allowed me to stay in England for another year 
to look for work. And if I didn't get, you know, a sponsor job visa, I'd have to move back to the United States. And I went over to I went over there for grad school not knowing what the future would hold, whether I'd be able to stay, whether I'd come back, what I was going to do work-wise. So I hung around in England for that year. I took out another student loan to try to, like, get me through that. Um, And that ran out very rapidly. I was capped into, like, what else I could get. So it covered me for, you know, the last couple months of the program and then one or two after that. And I just started looking for, like, little freelance projects. And they were not coming very quickly. I was really – I've never been so close to absolute starvation as that year after grad school. But luckily, my landlord was the course director. So whenever I couldn't pay the rent, I would tell him it was his fault. So he should should wait a couple of weeks until like a paycheck comes out. Damn. But I I did little, little freelance graphic design jobs here and there. Um, I volunteered at the St. Bride Library, which is a great way to like learn where things were in their collection for research purposes. Like I said my whole my whole career for a long time was about like doing things for less money, but you could learn more. Fun. <laughs> but um, eventually, well, it's working out. Yeah, so, but it, eventually, this opportunity came up. The department at Reading had a research proposal that was approved for what they called a knowledge transfer partnership scheme, which is a UK scheme that embeds a person hired by a university to work in a commercial company so that you know the academic department learns more about the goings-on in the contemporary workplace. The contemporary workplace gets to draw on all the you know, latest research and skill building happening in the universities. So it's kind of like some sort of spy scheme, but that both sides are happy with. It's, it's more like a... Like a you know, a high level internship with a lot of bureaucracy. But it was basically, it was great oh for me because project was to have someone work at Monotype and look at what they were doing about, you know, global scripts, non-Latin typography. And I had spent that year hanging after my degree, hanging around at the department, learning more about other worlds, writing systems, uh, just by helping Fiona Ross with some projects. And I needed a work visa. So I I got this job where I was employed by the university. Um, My job was to be at Monotype and talk to as many people there as possible about how they worked, how they'd done things over the years. And by the time that two-year period was was coming to a close, they knew that Robin Nicholas, who'd been the type director at Monotype and had worked there since the mid-60s, was getting ready to retire. Oh. And... I had started helping out on some type design projects um, just when they needed an extra hand on something. So they offered to hire me once this research project was over. Because I had worked in so many different contexts professionally for years before going to Reading, it's like, oh, well, you know, you'll be well-placed, you know, work for a year. I was basically set up to take over for Robin Nicholas running the type drawing office. Um, it was an incredible opportunity. Yeah. Um, they didn't handle my visa application properly at the end oh. of this two-year project. So I got deported and went back to the States for a few months while they mm. sorted that out. Went back, started working at Monotype full-time, and that was great. I learned so much there. And I kind of like – that was really my professional reinvention. That's where I came back and was like, I'm a professional typeface designer. I understand this context 
of the graphic design world because I had worked in it so I could go and I could talk to customers. And that really sort of set me up. But it was funny that the whole idea about your podcast is about like the mistakes or the things that you're embarrassed about the way. When I did realize that I was going to get deported because my visa wasn't going to come through, I needed money desperately because I was counting on, you know, starting a new job and then suddenly I wasn't going to be able to work for months. And that's when Google Fonts was starting up. Oh. And uh, I just I, – I took on a commission. This is when they were starting to really build up their offering of – fonts to be freely available for their web font service. Yeah. So I was I was one of those early fonts that they did where they were just like offering designers some bits of money to do things. And I figured I was like, oh, well, there's a great opportunity. It will allow me to buy a laptop of my own, which I didn't own because I'd had one owned by my job. And it'll get me up on my feet. It'll give me some some income. But I realized that like, oh, okay, realistically, the money for this project gives me about two weeks to work on a typeface. Ooh. And so I did two two typeface designs. It was a month's worth of work, which I desperately needed, and it was great. But my ability to work fast and decisively had not fully formed as a type designer yet, <laughs> the way it had been as a graphic designer. So I, you know, for one of them, I reworked my Reading typeface. I you know, made it lower contrast. I took elements more of like typewritery things because that's something they asked me to think about. And I reworked it in two weeks to something that was pretty good. I liked it at the time. But the more I've looked at it over time, I was like, oh, that is such like a junior typeface. Like the spacing is not great. The curves could have been better. But it was one of the first web fonts available on Google Fonts. It made its way into a lot of default templates for like blog CMS publishing tools. Oh, wow. So uh, the usage of this typeface this month so far is uh, 382,000 downloads. And it's, oh, no, this, no, that's the one that didn't get used as much. The one, <laughs> so the one where I reworked my Reading typeface rapidly, which it like just, it pains me because I can see so much more of what it could be. Um I, mean, I, I feel like we're I'm, dancing around the name of it. Do we? No, it's <laughs> it's, want to say it's, it? it's called Cops. I also part of the mistake of this is I also used like two great names on typefaces <laughs> I don't love: Cops and Astlach. And so yeah, so Cops has been used five point fifty three million times this month. Wow! And it's featured on more <laughs> than eighty seven thousand websites. It's a single style typeface, and it haunts me. <laughs> That I've not really – that I just put it out into the world and, you know, even like by like two years later, I'd be like, this is not up to my standards. Yeah. I was just like too – I was too raw at what I was doing you to handle You were actively in the like process that. of being deported yeah. in fairness. <laughs> yeah. Like – So, yeah. Aslock, the typeface, the other typeface that I did where I did two weights, um, they've been used this month. Uh Oh, no, no. This is over the last week, not last oh. month. So, so Aslock was 382,000 used on 51 websites. Um, Cops has been used five, five, five and a half million times wow. <laughs> last week. And, you know, that's quite a few times in a week. And it's, it, you know, there's pains to me because it's I see all the things that could have been done better in these typefaces. And knowing that they're so widespread, it's like you can't pull that yeah. back. Yeah. But 
the thing that rubs me a wrong way, and this is more of a vanity thing, is I've worked on so many typefaces over the years, my, mostly during the years I worked at Monotype, where I was doing custom type. So I've done a lot of stuff that doesn't have my name attached to it. I don't have a lot of commercially available typefaces. When I have to, like, when people say, it's like, oh, what have you done? I have to say, it's like, well, there's this typeface called Cops that looks like a weird smushed typewriter typeface. <laughs> Uh, uh, you may have like removed it from a blog template you downloaded for free from somewhere. Um, but you know, but the reality is this, I've worked on stuff that is all over the place. Yeah. You know, I've, I've, I led the projects for Southwest airlines. I redrew Helvetica for CNN. I, you know, the branding typeface for Salesforce, the Taco Bell logo, like it's some pretty fucking huge yeah. stuff, but it's, but you know, and then it's weird. Cause the people's like, Oh, you do fonts. Like, what have you done? Like, <laughs> well, yeah, but that's, I, I mean, that's kind of the curse of, I mean, in a, in a way, like type designers kind of have it the worst because like in design, you know, um, I mean, I, I come from web more than anything else. And in web, you kind of always know that the thing that you're making is disposable. Yeah. You'll, it'll be up if you're lucky two years and then it'll be completely scrapped. Um, or like some, a few terrible websites that I made still haunt you 10 years later yeah. and you'll be like, Oh God, yeah, I have <laughs> Why those won't too, it die. You know? Um, but like with, with type design, like you, you're putting the thing out in the world and there's no versioning of it really. It's just out there forever. Yeah. And you and you can't control what people do with it. Yeah. So you, you you kind of have to take responsibility for what happens with like that piece of someone else's design. Yeah. Um you know, it's such a blessing. I I've seen people do really nice looking work with these Google typefaces, for instance, and I'm so grateful. Because, you know, like I've not been able to like grapple with them as a graphic designer in a way that finds that that secret sauce. Um, but I've also seen terrible things done with them. <laughs> and I've seen terrible things done with really nice typefaces I've worked on. Oh, today. yeah. It's, it's just interesting. You have to like you have to let your children fly and become who, who they're meant to be. Yeah. But it, all this is why, you know, I've, after years of working at places like Monotype and, and Adobe where I couldn't release my own typefaces because I wouldn't own the IP, which I've always felt very strongly about. Um, so I've just not released the things that I've wanted to do for myself. So starting at Bijou is giving me a chance now, which Type Network uh, very kindly allows and encourages, um, to publish the ideas that have been digesting for years and years now. Um, it just unfortunately only means that I also have like nights and one or two days <laughs> per week to actually concentrate on them so it's going to be slow going oh god well but at least it's getting out there like um that's I, i'm glad that we're getting more typefaces that that we can actually use not just that taco bell can use yeah although i didn't do a typeface for taco bell i just, just drew the just drew the letters of the logo type because the uh when i left monotype I had a non-compete clause, so I couldn't design type for a year. But, really? Yeah. But what I was allowed to do was draw logo types. So I picked up <laughs> – I, I, so I, I became like the logo type surgeon contractor. You know, so an agency team would be working on a brand identity for weeks. 
and the you know say the letter forms of the the logo type would start drifting more and more, and I would get called in to like just pull it back together <laughs> and just put a fine polish on it and have that sit within all the other work that the, those teams had been doing about the strategy and the overall aesthetics. So I did a few of those, and those are those are really fun because yeah. those kind of projects hit around the time where I could be like fast and decisive in what I do because I'd had the practice now. So I, you know. I really was like that guy, and it, you know, it's only worked out for a handful of projects. But I was the guy who comes in and's like, in three days, I can get this back on track for you. And that's got to be a fun, a fun role to be in. Like you are the fixer. You are yeah. coming in. There's this existing team that are probably just completely frazzled yeah. by the whole idea yeah. of like what went wrong. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it, you know, and it was also when I learned that lesson that I think a lot of a lot of designers have over the years of like. When you give your quote for the job and no one bats an eye, you immediately realize you have undercharged <laughs> for the, the value that you're apparently going to bring to this process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, always aim higher than you think you're going yeah. gonna to need. I thought I was already doing that. <laughs> yeah. There's no ceiling with Taco Bell is the thing. <laughs> That you go into a Taco Bell restaurant, which no one ever has, you always go through the drive-through. But if you went in, you would notice there's no ceiling in the Taco Bell. It just keeps going up. <laughs> it's just heaven shining right down on you, <laughs> shining right down on that cube that they make all the beans out. <laughs> um, so, in in addition to to your work with Adobe and and uh, Type Network, you're you're still doing your zine. How did you start on Pink Mints? I have always done stuff on the side for fun. It's I mean, it's just how I deal with like not having enough creative outlet and whatever I'm doing work at any point. Um, so I just make something for fun on the side, and particularly since starting work as a type designer, I don't get to do things with type a lot. It's a very different, you know, form of play than yeah. designing type is to work with typefaces. Um, so, uh, you know, at the time I, when I started doing Pink Mints, I was living in England and I was trying to make friends and I wanted to do something fun. It's so like, oh, I'll make a zine. And I met like a couple cool people who do different things. We'll start doing it together. And it's I've been doing it for 12 years now. So it seems like, well, I can't stop. <laughs> Because it's it's ta it's taken on a life of its own, but it still does the same thing. It lets me do other kinds of fun things that I enjoy. Yeah, and I love I love just like the intimacy of making a cool little print thing that you hold in your hands. And I'm always very stubborn about doing things with it that only makes sense when the physical object is in your hands. It doesn't yeah. fully come across. In that. It doesn't come across when you look at images on the web. And then it gives me a chance to use like fun type that I wouldn't necessarily be able to do in, you know, the the paying work that I do from day to day. Oh, it's gorgeous. So the one you're looking at now is a twelve color risograph issue. I was gonna ask because I bought a riso machine just as I was leaving New York and I shipped it across here to Oregon with the rest of my stuff. But it came with twelve color drums, which is amazing. Yeah. But I, but I had to test every one of them, so I had to like. <laughs> come up with a project that like it made sense to use in 12 colors Ooh, that was a that was probably a long a long production uh leg it actually it just one. i just did it over the course of a couple weekends you know it's like i thought a lot about how it would work and how to prepare the artwork and then i just printed it in a couple of weekends oh this neon yellow i don't even think i like this green yellow i didn't know that existed yeah 
Um, but it just seemed really fun. Like I've been doing all this this research about the typography used in sort of gay publications over the years and how that, you know, there's certain aesthetics came out of the fact that they weren't like regular mainstream magazines. Yeah. Just when there were things like letter set available so that they didn't have to go to like professional typesetters and it's all about marginalization and democratization. But I've been looking at a lot of the typographic stuff. And so for this issue, it was like, it's basically like a choose your own dirty magazine title generator. <laughs> um, so I got to use a whole bunch of awesome typefaces and set them uh, in crazy colors. Uh, quivering filthy jamboree mm-hmm. is one of the options. Yeah. Uh... Again, if you're curious to see this in person, check it out at pinkmans.com. <laughs> you're surely going to come to some you don't want to say aloud in the but it gets into it's. <laughs> but you know, it's like just to do something that is like fun and visually stimulating is a nice tonic for when you're sort of frustrated with writing emails and filling out spreadsheets all day. Absolutely, absolutely. You got. I mean, you gotta do. You you gotta have some creative outlet from yeah, that, or absolutely. else that stuff will just well, eat and, your brain. And also, like that stuff is the other part of my life. You know, a lot of my struggle is. You know, professionally, is like I'm representing other companies. I'm trying to, I'm trying to encourage trust from people who are like, you know, come from different walks of life, do other things. Um, at the same time, I just want to be like, look, like I'm also drawn to like this sort of like zesty, fun stuff, and you know, I want to do some stuff that's like gay, 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 <laughs> and and just like I, you know. I always say like graphic design and typography, <laughs> that is the art medium that I like to work in. Yeah. It's, you know, it's it's what I have at my disposal to express myself in one way or another. So if like I can't do, do it at work, I can do it on the side. If I can't do it on the side, I'll do it at work. Try to like keep it all together. But I have to say that what was nice about having always done some stuff on the side, um, it's always worked out for me professionally that I've done that. Like when I was getting graphic design jobs, um, I I put in uh, these zines that I had done. There's another zine called Rumpus Room that I did in my early 20s. Um, but it was designed well. And I put it in my portfolio to show that I could do some things that I didn't necessarily have opportunities to do in yeah. professional jobs. And people always responded well to that, that I had work that was self-directed and where I tried to like stretch my ideas and my capabilities. And even in when I'd be talking about typographic stuff since starting to switch over to being a type designer, when I would talk about pink mints as an example of how I was digesting research about these different things, it was really great to discover that people would be like, I didn't realize there was a space in my professional life for me to talk about my personal life or my identity. Yeah, And I was like, Oh, shit. That's actually what I've been doing by stubbornly not trying to let go of the the stuff that I'm interested in on the side. It's me trying to knit my worlds together, but it's a big deal to be able to do that. And I'm lucky enough that I've had the chances to pull it off. And I definitely want to encourage other people to, like, bring their full selves to the table. And that's, you know, and that's why, like, Pink Mints is very much a money losing hobby but it's really it's really <laughs> important to me that. because i get to i get to like express my full self in some capacity yeah. and actually show that these sides 
you know, my personal self is not separate from my professional self. Like the crossover of my interest in typography and, you know, queer culture is very, very matter of fact and obvious to me. And I don't think it necessarily is for other people. So like, why not show that there's room for all these things to coexist? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I, you know, I hope it's inspiring to like the queer designers out there who are feeling like, what's the place for, for me in this field? Like yeah. it's anywhere. It's anywhere you want to be. Yeah. You know, you had, I was listening to your interview with Kyle Attender, who is a neighbor of mine now. And I met him recently but he was – I was listening to him give a talk about this. I'd seen his stuff and I mean he's so outrageously talented. Oh, yeah. And I was listening to him give a talk because I love his work and how like fully he brings himself into it. And he like saw me in the chat room and he's like, it's like oh my god, Dan Radigan is here. Like, I can't believe it. And I was like, wait, why do you like have any – why should you know who I am? But I think when we like met and we're like chatting, we realized that we've both been through that same journey of like – why shouldn't all of me be in the work? Yeah. Um, because I'd rather look at work that has more in it than less. You know? That's a really, really great thing to to take away. Dan. Messy where- mistakes and all. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dan, if people want to get their own copy of Pink Mints, mm-hmm. where do they go for that? Uh, the easiest place to get Pink Mints is at pinkmints.com. Why? What a convenient URL for for Pink Mints to be at. SEO is very important. <laughs> um, and and each one is is like a little different in how it's every made issue up. of Pink Mints is entirely different because it's not That's like fantastic. It's not like a publication that has a format. Yeah, it is just kind of a wrapper for me to put around a little project of something I'm obsessed with. Something at the moment. Just something to make and be joyful yeah. and it's a zine. So yeah. like it can be anything. Yeah. Like the the latest issue, uh, which is I I called it Give the People What They Want. And it is just pictures of hot dudes. <laughs> because, you know, I had been doing so much typography stuff with other issues. Like, you know, I also know that this is something that people enjoy seeing in Pink Mints is Pictures of hot dudes. Like, fine, do that. Here's here's one with like next to no fonts, so like you can relax. And there's something for you too. <laughs> so something for everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is really fantastic. If people want to find more about about your work other than pigments, where do they go for that? Um, I'm so easy to Google because I've been on the internet for so long. Um, ultrasparky.org has been a website that I've been running since the late 90s. And so it is just a shambles of unupdated migrations <laughs> from one CMS to another. But there's a lot of material there. I'm on Twitter at ultrasparky. And uh, bijoutype.com is the website that my foundry will be launching at. Yes. By the time people hear this, it's possible that that may have more than just a holding page, but that certainly will be where to find all my typefaces within a couple months. Yes. Go check it out. That's, I mean, you, you're going to see some beautiful type there. Like, <laughs> let's hope so. <laughs> you couldn't see him. Dan, Dan, Dan did some, some real uh, intense, uh, you know, hope and pray fingers there. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much for being it's here, been Dan. Fun. Thank you. Um, it's been a joy to have you here. Um, and thank you to the listener out there. Uh, if you like this show, uh, maybe you're hearing it for the first time. Maybe you're a long time listener. First time 
collar. Wait, no, that doesn't work. Uh, well, either way, why not subscribe to it in whatever device that you use for playing podcasts? Um, you can search for the words, did I do that in them? Um, you can also go to, uh, go to YouTube. YouTube is, is also a place where these are being hosted now. Our YouTube URL is just, uh, youtube.com slash at did I do that dot design. And uh, yeah, it's apparently very popular to listen to podcasts that just have a static image. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm no judgment here. If you enjoy it, then more power to you. I'm going to keep putting them up there. Um, you can also learn about the show from our website, did I do that dot design, um, which is where you can get to our various social media platforms, whatever those should be at the time. SEO uh, is so important. SEO is so important. I can't stress that. <laughs> Uh, that's, I mean, that's a big part of why this show is called Did I Do That? Because I could get that URL. But on that website, you can find some good, good images that go along with each and every episode of this show. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's, there's some other things that link to there also. Um, but the thing that I'm looking at here is definitely out of date. So... <laughs> I'm not going to read that part. Um, So this has been Did I Do That? I'm Sean Schumacher. And as we always say at the end of every episode. What do you have to say? I wasn't given instructions. (laughs) That's what we always say. Okay, bye. (laughs) Fantastic. like a good actor exercise rutabaga 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 lubegas rutabagas <laughs> um that might be what he's up to now i don't know I know a little bit how it works because I started listening to, like, episodes with people I know already, so which is like catching up with old friends. Yeah. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard that that's kind of the experience for a lot of yeah. folks. Um, someone was telling me that they like to fall asleep to it because it's like, you know, just some, some of their friends hanging out. And, yeah. like, that was kind of, kind of a nice compliment. Like, I would think that it's probably a very loud show to fall asleep to. <laughs> I mean, it's boisterous, but you know that's good. I don't know if I'd fall asleep to it. No, it's 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 certainly not an ASMR podcast, no. unless I really pivot very hard. Um, so I've been working on typefaces for years now. Tell me about the typefaces you've been working on, Dan. <laughs> yeah, the public radio voice I don't find very soothing to listen to. Yeah, it's too easy to tune out. It's it's a very sleepy voice. Yeah. But then you also, I, I maybe the, what. Maybe the secret sauce of ASMR is then you also have, like, crinkling sounds. Oh, I'm touching the felt part of the microphone. <laughs> Isn't this fun? <laughs> I forgot that you have to deal with that sonic experience as well. That, that, that goof. great, right? <laughs> 
maybe maybe it's the the madness that has set in from having to spend eight hours listening to my own voice <laughs> and trying to edit out the dumber weird sounds that my mouth makes. But I'm I'm immune to it now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was making mouth sounds earlier, and I was like, these are funny. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, I can't release this. Everyone will hate this mouth sounds bit. <laughs> this is a crime that I've committed. Okay. All right. So we're rolling. We're seeing levels on the thing. This is good. I peaked. Oh, no. I peaked. Oh, but you've got so many years left. You would think so, but apparently not. Not according to the recording technologies. Um, it does make sense, actually. 